You're listening to The Big Data Beard. We are an O'Reilly Media partner and community sponsor of Strata Data Conferences and AI Conferences around the world. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of our show for details on how you can enter to win a free pass to Strata Data Conference in San Jose, California on March 6th through the 8th of 2018. And now for your host of this, the final episode of season one of our podcast. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Big Data Beard podcast. My name is Thomas Henson, and I'll be your host for today. But it won't just be me. I've got two other beards that are going to join the bus. So, Rob, how, how are you doing today? Doing awesome. It's great. Nice, ra- gray, rainy day in Seattle like normal. So, all positive and thumbs up and optimistic. We've also got Corey Mitten that's going to jump on the bus. Corey, how's it going? Man, living the dream. Uh, are you guys still growing your beards? It's I know it's it's still No Shave November. Please. Trying. Trying hard. I... I did a little trim up and uh, had a miss lick, so I'm, I started back over. Oh, disappointment all over the place. And so today we've also got a guest. I'd like to introduce the co-founder of Hortonworks, a big data community leader and author of the programming pig book, uh, Alan Gates. Alan, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. And uh, I'm in California where it's nice and sunny. No gloom here, definitely. And uh Despite the no shave November, I'm nice and cleanly shaven this morning. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's disappointing. So uh, you know, you're now you're just bragging. We started off the podcast with you bragging about California. Uh, <laughs> we know how the we know how that's going to go. Well, Alan, thanks for being on the show. I want to I wanted to start off by just getting giving you an opportunity to be able to introduce yourself, and then we'll kind of dig into your background. So, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what you do on a daily basis? Sure. So let me start with a little history since I'm an old guy. Um, So I actually started in the Hadoop world um, about 10 years ago, 10 and a half now when Hadoop was still very young. Um, I started on the pig project, which uh, was at the time in Apache, or sorry, in Yahoo Labs as a research project. We took it to um, Apache as an open source project. That was my first experience with both open source and Apache in any big way. Um, I mean, I contributed a few patches here and there before, but this was definitely my first big experience. Um, worked on Pig for years, uh, moved over and started helping with Hive oh, six, seven years ago now. And around about that time also helped found Hortonworks. Out, uh, a bunch of us came out of Yahoo and helped to build Hortonworks. Um, where I am on the um, the architecture team. So I actually, my day-to-day job, part of it is still development, doing architecture work, um, reviewing other people's stuff. And also part of it is uh, you know, other founder stuff, like being involved in ODPI and some other things. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Let me dig, a little, dig in a little bit on the uh, Yahoo, um, kind of how, how it all kind of came about. So we had Bill Schmarzo on the show not too long ago, and he was there at the same time, kind of working on some of the marketing research and the analytics side of it. What was it like being a part of, you know, being at Yahoo during the days that Hadoop was, you know, just coming out of open source and, you know, Pig was there, Hive, that was all, all kind of being just pushed to the market? And Well, so early on, we didn't know what how big it was going to be, right? I mean, kind of now you look back and think, oh, it must have been amazing. But at the time, it kind of was all just something we thought was for us and a few other people, right? I mean, we were involved, Facebook, Netflix, Twitter, basically all the web properties that couldn't buy a big enough database, right? We couldn't go to Oracle or Teradata or whatever and buy a database that would handle the amount of data we needed to move at a price that we could pay. Um, Teradata maybe could have handled the volumes that we had back then early on, but it couldn't, not at a price point that that was going to work out. Um, so we, we ended up building kind of our own thing and sharing that with, with the others. But it wasn't... Um, you know, it wasn't that long before other people started picking it up. Um, some of the insurance companies got interested. Some of the banks got interested. Some of the governments got interested. It was like, oh, well, maybe maybe this is something other people would be interested in. Maybe it's not just us that's willing to do it. 
And early on with Hadoop, you did you had to be pretty brave to do it, right? You had to have a fair amount of engineering resources to make it work. Um, but it it still was something that people started to pick up. And it was a ways after that we started to realize, oh, this could maybe go somewhere. And by then there were other people um, that were starting to, to push it, Cloudera, MapR. And that's when we started to realize, oh, okay, so maybe we could um, we could take this somewhere. And so we started to work with Yahoo on how would we get out, do this on our own. At the same time, uh, Rob Bearden, now our CEO from Benchmark Capital, approached Yahoo and said, hey, how would you like to spin this out? You know, this looks like a pretty interesting project. Um, and so kind of those two streams coming together work to build Hortonworks. So it's a confluence of a whole bunch of kind of interesting activity. I do find it, I do find it interesting that you say like it was just, you guys were just kind of trying to solve a problem. You're just a bunch of engineers that are dealing with, you know, like you said, the web properties are dealing with scale and issues and frankly, budget problems that nobody else was probably dealing with at the time. Right. But you didn't just like, you didn't just like this didn't, that wasn't the beginning. It was at the beginning of your career. Like, had you just graduated from school? Was that the genesis for you? No, I'm old. I'd already been doing stuff for 15 years by then. Um, I actually, my first job was in telecom way back in the early nineties. Um, the, by the mid nineties, I worked for Informix, um, the database company. So, and then I, um, worked for a couple startups that I'm sure you've never heard of cause they went nowhere. Um, and then both of which working inside database, you know, database stuff. And then, um, I actually started at Yahoo four years before I started on the Hadoop stuff, not, you know, not in Hadoop, but in just, uh, internal database tools for Yahoo since they were building their own, uh, Hadoop was not Yahoo's first take at how to do all this stuff. And even originally inside Yahoo, Hadoop wasn't for the database stuff. It was for, um, you know, for the web search, right? They needed to rebuild the web search because, or sorry, the web crawl. Because they would, Yahoo would crawl the web um, on a regular basis to build all its links. And I don't, I was not involved in the web crawl stuff, so I'll probably get the numbers all wrong. But it took something like a week um, to do the crawl when Yahoo had its own proprietary crawler. When they started rebuilding it on Hadoop, they got it down to you know taking hours instead of days to get the crawl done. Um, then it was after that they turned to it and said, um, or you know turned to the internal database stuff that I was working in and, and said, well maybe Hadoop's the right solution here too since it's improved the web crawl so radically. Um, that's when I got involved. Very cool. Now, is your background, um, you know, you, you said earlier you're in California, in the Silicon Valley. Are you, are you one of these dudes that was like, uh, you know, involved in super cool stuff in college and was already part of like a board for a venture capital firm on the West Coast? Or like, what was your, what was your genesis like in education? Um, so my undergrad degrees in math and my, I have a master's in theology. So yeah, that fits me super well for all this database stuff. Um, I am sure it takes, a yeah. lot, like you said, it takes a lot of faith to, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is some faith involved here, but, um, no, my, my undergrads in math, I got involved in software cause you know, I was out of school in the early nineties and didn't, I kind of been goofing around, not, um, my wife and I took some time, worked in national parks and traveled around and then, um, a friend of mine said, Hey, you know, my company needs, uh, he worked at this telecom company I started at. He said, hey, we need somebody to do tech support. And I'm like, hey, sure, it beats waiting tables, which is what I was doing. Um, so I got that's how I got started in software, taught myself uh, C and uh, Unix. And because I decided, hey, tech support's not a lot of fun. You're just answering the phone and you know dealing with people's problems. I'd rather be writing this software. So I figured out how to do that and moved into the engineering department. Then got hired by Informix, and that's how I got into database uh, work. So, yeah, no, I, I took a completely unorthodox route. That was all in Oregon, actually. I moved to uh, Silicon Valley uh, around the end of 2000. Right at the end of the boom, I kind of timed that exactly Nice wrong. timing. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Right. Not low, so high. No. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I've never quite gotten the hang of that. I admit, I, I always time that backwards because I can always look at it and go, that's not going to work. Because I remember looking at all those web things that were going to sell dog food or whatever. I'm like, you're not going to make any money off of that. What I missed was they, that's true in the end, but in the short term, it was true in the long term, but not in the short term. And so I looked at it backwards and then timed it exactly wrong. And oh, well, whatever. <laughs> so you spent some time, uh, you know, working in a national park, waiting tables. Then, then you did 15 years. Fast forward, you're at Yahoo. And so you're dealing and you're on the Hadoop project. And you said, you know, you guys are all just having fun. But, you know, you didn't really realize that it's going to be, you know, such a big thing. It was just tools that you guys were building. So what's the background on why do we have why do we have Hive? Why do we have Pig? And I mean, why do we need a zookeeper? I mean, did you guys I mean, I've, I've talked to Owen O'Malley a little bit uh, last year at the Hortonworks Roadshow. And he was talking about how, you know, somebody at one point said no more naming these things you know, after animals. And then that's where Zookeeper came because he had to kind of deal, deal with them all. Were you guys just have open reign to how you wanted to name this and why all the animals? Well, there's definitely some open reign. So, you know, I don't even know the background behind all the animal names, to be honest. Um, Pig came about, I am told it was already called this by the time I got on the project, but originally it was just called the language or something. And one of the research scientists walked in one day and said, we need a name. And somebody else said, we'll call it Pig. And it stuck, um, you know, and so, yeah, partly it was just having fun. And you can still see that right in Hive with our recent work to add MPP type support where they called it LLAP, which stands for live long and process. Right. So <laughs> there's still that, you know, kind of wild, you know, this is, I always tell people, don't let your engineers name projects. This is what you get. Um there is kind of that, but part of it too, I would say, and I think this is still partly what's going on. There was a fair amount of experimentation. Pig was a was a question of, do we go back to SQL? Do we is SQL the way? And Hive was the you know was the answer of yes, SQL is the way. Pig was let's try something else. Maybe scripting is the right answer here. Maybe um, maybe people don't want to think about this only in a sequely way. And I think one of the things that's strong about Hadoop and the Hadoop, and I would say now the whole big data ecosystem, not just Hadoop, is you can deal with data in different ways. The old school database world, there was SQL. And if you didn't like it, well, you should just get over that. Basically, um, there weren't a lot of options outside of SQL for you. I think one of the beauties about Hadoop and the big data world is if you don't like SQL, you can use Pig, you can use Spark, you can use Flink if you're doing streaming, well, or even not streaming. Um, you know, if there's lots of different ways to look at and think about your data, and I actually see that as a strength because different problems really do better with different tools and different people, frankly, just think in different paradigms. So lots of people like SQL. It's what they know. It's what they've used for many years. And a lot of people look at SQL and go, yuck, I hate that. I don't think in relations. I think in data flows. And so um, yeah, but was it was going to be a better tool. Wasn't SQL like the, the ability to use SQL semantics with the underlying you know, architecture that was Hadoop? To me, that felt like one of the, the kind of the tipping points in terms of adoption, uh, specifically in the enterprise and more mass scale adoption like you said, in financial services, don't, don't you, do you think that's true? Like the SQL capabilities? Oh, it's, it's very true. I call SQL the English of the data world. Yeah. Everybody speaks it, right? And you may not speak it well. You, you may have a funny accent, but you speak it, right? And I think that's what, at first, that's where Hive was at. It had the funny accent because it was doing it on top of, of MapReduce, right, which was hard. Now we've gone underneath and reworked all that so that it's not, so that it's very natural. It has Tez or Spark underneath, um, and now LLAP, which can execute those SQL queries in a much more uh, kind of natural fashion. Um, but so I agree it was very much the, the tipping point, but I would also say that that openness to other approaches has, I think, made um, big data take off because people could do things like machine learning much more easily. Can you do machine learning in uh, SQL? I'm sure you can, but you know, it, I certainly wouldn't want to ask somebody to have to do it that way. So if 
English. So, so if SQL is the English version, you know, because everybody everybody speaks it to some extent. So, I guess everything in in the Hadoop world and the Hadoop ecosystem, I guess Java is kind of like Greek. It's all kind of derived from there. So, what are where where are we going at with Pig? You, you kind of talked about it a little bit, and we had a episode. I guess I think it was episode two. You can go back and you know check it out for our listeners. But we were talked about you know, and everybody puts out these lists and. You know, one of one of the languages on there for the big data world was, you know, pig, you know, is kind of going away. But I mean, we were at DataWorks Summit this year, you know, in San Jose, and I know Yahoo had converted all their, you know, a lot of their pig jobs, I think mo- majority of those over to Tez. And then now I'm seeing support for pig on Spark. I mean, pig's still around, pig's still going, right? Or is it well, pig is very much still around. And Hive or sorry, Yahoo still uses pig extensively. I know some other uh, companies still do, in fact. Um, we asked ourselves at Hortonworks, we asked, can, you know, do we still need to support pig in HTTP version three when it comes out? And the answer from our user base came back a resounding yes. Like uh, plenty of people used it. Um, they definitely still want us to support it. It's not, I wouldn't, I would say it's not growing a lot. It's not adding a lot of new features. Um, it kind of does what it does and people are happy with it, but they, there's definitely still a, a strong base out there. So with their talking a little bit about pig, but let's shift over and talk a little bit about Hadoop. So we've talked about, you know, some of the shift and some of the different ways that we can do it. So you can, you know, have your pig jobs where it's in Tez or it's in MapReduce. What's what, where's the Hadoop community now specifically to Hadoop? I mean, we see a lot of people that, you know, they've kind of taken Hadoop and they don't talk about it as much or everything's about spark kind of where as a community leader, do you kind of see that going as far as Hadoop? And I mean, is Hadoop still a main player? Um, I would definitely say Hadoop's I mean, still a big player. Um, I would say I see several shifts kind of going on in different dimensions. One is Hadoop itself is expanding. Um, there's been a lot of work on the HDFS side to add uh, an object store so that um, for people who want to think in that object store paradigm, um, they can do so. It also actually makes HDFS more scalable in some ways. Um, there's on the yarn side, they've been doing a lot of work to add container support so that people can run general Docker containers on top of yarn. Cause once you've got all your data someplace, it's really nice to be able to run all your apps on there. Not just the ones that are Hadoop specific. Um, and then obviously the, you know, the big question there is the cloud. What, what happens when you go into the cloud? And I would say there's several things. One people still want to run Hive and Spark and some of the, like Spark can run natively on the cloud. Hive runs by using still the HDFS APIs. So even though it's in the cloud, it's still thinking of that as Hadoop. So there's still some of Hadoop there as the API layer, even if it's not the execution layer. But the bigger thing we're finding with our customers here at Hortonworks is everybody's doing something in the cloud, but everybody still has stuff on premise, right? It's really a mixed world. So is there going to be um, Hadoop on the cloud? Yeah. Is there going to be Hadoop on-premise? Yes, definitely. We're seeing it in both places. So when you say cloud, are you are you seeing, I mean, well, obviously we know AWS was kind of the, the leader in that space for many years. But in the big data space, we've seen a number of other like entrants and the, you know, the other big two being the uh, Azure from Microsoft and then also obviously the Google Cloud platform. Are you seeing trends you know one cloud versus the other sort of winning in your accounts or in the you know as a as a macro in the community it's really regional um here in the u.s you you know we see some of each but aws is definitely the 800 pound gorilla right um as you get outside the u.s that starts to balance out a little more we see more microsoft um you know, there's still plenty of Amazon, but we, we start to see more of Azure, especially in Europe and Canada. Um, and I then you get to Asia and it becomes a whole different set of players because there's a lot of local players there in the cloud. And it's it's a lot cloudier picture, if you'll forgive the this sad pun. But I mean, there's lots of different clouds there. It's not quite the big three that we're used to here. Yeah. So what are the, you know, at the community level and even at the Hortonworks level, what are you seeing as some of the developments that, uh, that, that are required for organizations and for platforms like, you know, HDP and, and others from the Hortonworks family and frankly, in the community, what are the big sort of developments that have to happen 
to enable this multi-cloud world because we we know i think and you know in the if you're a hardware seller right cloud is a bad idea but it's kind of a good idea because you're an arms dealer to them but but we know like enterprises are still going to do the majority of their you know or i should say always but in general we see a large majority of applications data being on premises what are the big things that that you and your team have to do to to make your platform relevant in this multi-cloud world i think the things we have to do are users don't want to think about where the data is right i mean think about it from an it perspective for a moment you want to you're going to have some data on prem you're going to have some on the cloud you don't want it all in one cloud because you don't want to be hostage to whichever cloud if they decide to double their rates or whatever right and so you're going to spread it around and you're going to be forced by if you're a, a big company you're going to be forced by legal requirements to spread it around anyway because even if it's all in the same cloud if you put it and you know if you start some in germany and start some in the us you probably can't mix those streams and and all kinds of stuff, right? So from an IT perspective, you're going to have it spread around, like you said. From an end user perspective, I don't want to have to think about that. It, I don't want to have to think about, oh, that data set lives in AWS in Germany, but this other one lives in Azure in you know, Kansas. I just want to go get my data and I want to you know, query it and govern it and make sure it's secure, whatever my job is. Um, I want to do that. So what I think we need to do as a company is make sure we are giving people the tools to interact across those systems, right? Is there one pane, if you're the security guy, is there one pane of glass that you can go to and make sure the security policies are right for all your data sets, regardless of where they're living? If you're an analyst and you need to get to those data sets, now you may have to be a little bit aware of that because there may be rules against joining across uh, national boundaries, or there may just be the laws of physics that say, you know, moving terabytes across links under the ocean doesn't work out so well. So you may have to be at least a little aware, but you'd still like to be able to say, okay, I'm at my laptop. I can just go find where the data set is I need to do my work on. Then I can go there and query it. I don't have to worry about um, myself knowing that or going to some big, long search page somewhere that tells me where everything is. It's that building those tools to make that a smooth experience for the users that I think is going to be key for us. So, what is Hortonworks? Uh, is there any particular products uh, that are that have been announced recently, or that you guys are kind of maybe have some cool code names for them that help bring <laughs> that together? Probably an animal, if I had Ooh. to guess. Uh, no, it's not an animal. Actually, <laughs> this is because the the marketers named this one instead of the engineers. So there is one. It's called Data Plane, and the idea here is. This is the kind of the, the piece that sits there and lets you manage all the different parts. And so far it's, you know, we just released version one in October, I believe it was. Um, so far it, it supports replication of data. So if you need to move your data between clusters, um, it, that will eventually be more sophisticated and allow um, replication from cluster to the cloud and between clouds and such. Um, We'll be adding in the governance and security pieces, and eventually, then the you know the the stuff to help users find and query their data, so that they can get all that. But it is kind of where we're pushing customers to say, "Here's or not pushing." Sorry, that's the wrong word. But um, giving to customers, here's if if you need to manage all this stuff, if you have more than one cluster or data in on prem and in the cloud, here's how we're going to help you basically keep track of all that and, and get to all of it. Did that come about also for streaming analytics and IOT? I mean, you have data, you know, out at the edge sometimes and you have, you know, more and more devices that are coming online. Are you, is, is that where you guys foresee data plane playing as well? Yeah, we do. It, it's going to be across all your data assets, right? Again, you don't want to have to think about, Oh, that data is out on the edge versus it's in this cluster. You just want to do your job. Um, now some of that, it's going to have to be somewhat aware of the edginess of things, right? If it's actually coming out of your car, um, your car might not be connected right at the moment. So there has to be some awareness, but again, we want to integrate all that and give people that kind of single, single view of things. So it's funny you mentioned cars and edge processing. The, 
the automated, or I shouldn't say the automated, autonomous car projects uh, in the big, you know, not only the big manufacturers and the traditional ones, but in the the web properties that you said were the kind of the beginning places where big data started. That presents some really interesting challenges on that edge uh, sort of space that I think, you know, obviously data plane sort of relevant, but are there any big kind of uh, technology advancements you're seeing happen in the community with an ODPI or others that, that have been just purely based on and come out of that autonomous vehicle sort of trend we're seeing? I, you know, I don't know. I'm not close enough to that part of it to have seen what's going on. I mean, I, I know a little bit of what's going on there in terms of there's challenges, um, you know, how much the, the big challenges are around. I generate tons and tons of data, but my uplink isn't very big. What should I send? What should I not send? What do I keep for later? What's important? And even how do I do feedback? Like, let me shift the use case a little bit because it's a little more extreme, but a similar idea. Um, you get a, these jet engines they produce like on an airplane. I don't remember how much it is, but it comes per hour, but it comes out to a transoceanic flight. You can end up generating a couple terabytes worth of data out of that engine. Obviously you can't upload all that when you're in the, while you're flying, you don't have enough space on the satellite link. And even when you're on the ground, you're not always plugged in long enough to get it all downloaded. So what do you send? What do you keep? And what do you like, say, you know, if, if all that data is just saying the engine's running normally, you probably don't need to send it all. But what if one part of the engine is getting a little warmer than it should be? Does that flip some switch somewhere that says, okay, now send more data about that particular subsystem because it's heating up? Um, do we need to do something? Those are the kinds of questions that I know they're asking in that space, but I, I'm not really in-depth knowledgeable on how they're attacking that or, or all the changes that are going on there. No worries. The, um, so it's funny, we, we've said Hadoop a handful of times in this, uh, in this conversation, but I find it astonishing how the words or the, the brand Hadoop or that name has just absolutely been shuttered by a lot of folks in this, in this ecosystem, in this community. Why is that? Why don't we say Hadoop anymore? (laughs) I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if it's a way to what well, I can think of two reasons and I don't honestly know if either of them are true. One is just, you know, it, it sounds a little bit kitty, right? Hadoop and pig and LLAP and all these, like, as we talked about earlier, kind of a little bit, you know, the engine, somebody let the engineers play and name all the products. Does it sound more professional if you can talk about, you know, data plane instead of Hadoop? Maybe. Part of it, too, I, I think some companies at least really want to talk about what how they're differentiating on top of it, since Hadoop is open source, um, since there are multiple places to get it. It's a way to talk about it. I, probably, actually, the, the real answer now is as, as the technology spreads out, it's becoming less and less about the technology and more about, more about the use cases it solves, right? Um, when was the last time you saw an ad for just Oracle's database server? Probably see it some, but a lot more common now is to see ads for all the apps that you can run on top of it, right? They can do HR programs and they can do ERP programs and all these other things because they're trying to connect with people that want to, that have specific problems to solve. They're not necessarily engineers that want a particular technology. I suspect we're probably maturing into that same space where people are we're connecting with customers who have a problem to solve rather than with engineers who are like, ooh, we know this is the latest, coolest technology. So you talked about how you start off in PIG and uh, you're involved in the Hive project. Are there any other open source projects that you're a part of and that you're involved with in the community? Um, s- Sort of. So one of my roles since I've been in Apache for a while now is I help mentor new projects when they come into the incubator. So I have been a mentor to uh, many, many projects, um, Flink, Uzi, Big Top, uh, a bunch, Calcite, 
many more that I can't think of and wouldn't remember the names of. And that doesn't mean I wrote code on those. Most of those I've never written a line of code. That's about helping them learn the Apache way, right? When they come in. And some of those are brand new projects that need to get going from the ground up. Some are already existing projects, but they're becoming Apache and they have to learn kind of the Apache way and how we do things. So in that sense, I've been involved in a number of projects and I, I'm still on their mailing lists and often still an, you know, a member of the, the PMC on those projects. But as far as actually truly contributing code, the vast majority of my work has been in Pig and Hive. So the I want to come back to contributing code because I, I have a question for you there. But in terms of the Apache community, how has it evolved over time? Because obviously some of the projects that you were involved in early on in terms of their development and their, you know, kind of their release into the open source, I'm sure Apache was a, a different community then than it is than it is now. And what is what's the what are those changes and what's what's different about what it means to be the Apache way? Well, I would say the big difference that I C is just really size and volume, right? Uh, Apache has really continued to grow, especially on the big data side. Um, you know, when at least when I got started with Pig, we were the second or third big data project. It, we didn't even use the word big data back then, but what you would now call big data. Um, and so honestly, a lot of the people in Apache didn't really know what we were about because they were all from, or most of them were from the HTTP or Tomcat side, and they were thinking more about Java servlets and those kinds of things than they were about, uh, you know, distributed file systems or whatever. Losers. So, that's, that's where the fun stuff is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, but uh, a question on Flink, though. So you said you mentored on Flink. Like that, is that, is that project going to be as big a deal over time as like the early buzz was? Um, well, if I could tell the future, well, come um, on, that's why you're here. That's how you got to where you are. <laughs> yeah. Did we, we already established the, uh, the, uh, buying high. Selling <laughs> yeah, exactly. high. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking for the, not... the anathema of what he's doing. <laughs> I, here's what I would say. I, I think that Flink has a really great model when it comes to stream processing. Um, and I think the interest there is how, they can do truly, you know, not batch, not micro batch, but down to the record stream processing and handling. How big is the market or interest for that? I, that's where I don't know the answer well. But from a technology perspective, I, I think it's really interesting technology. Yeah, it's like anything you just said. The, the use cases seem to be driving uh, more adoption than anything else. I guess the, then the, I think from in your seat as a, as a guy who's been a, you know, really kind of in a pivotal role of the, the early stages of big data and the technologies, have you, are like, what are you in the community doing to shift to that use case sort of lens um, to, to grow your relevance and grow your kind of your, uh, your adoption? I would say the big thing is we're trying to spend more time out with the users and try to figure out, okay, what, what exactly are you going to do with this technology, right? Because honestly, early on, uh, Hadoop was, here's a cool tool, now go find some problem to solve with it, right? Um, or, you know, it was engineers who already knew they had a big problem and knew they couldn't solve it any other way, so let's use Hadoop. And as I said, you do now have to meet people where they're at and say, hey, look, we've built this uh, database, data warehousing solution on top of Hadoop, we think it can solve your problem for you and here's how. So we're, we're really out there trying to figure out exactly what it is they're looking at. And, and really our best feedback there is our existing customers because as soon as you give them something, they're, you know, they're clamoring for something. They're like, you know, we used to do just ETL in Hive. Now we do all our reporting in Hive, but I can't hook my cubing engines up to it because it doesn't respond to those kind of queries fast enough. So why not? Right. So then we're like, oh, well, I guess we should go make it work for um, those cubing type queries. So we'll work on that. It, it's getting that feedback from them of where are they not happy? Because if your customers are either complaining at you or they're not using your stuff. So you, you got to listen to those complaints and see where they're trying to drive it. 
Are you able to take those complaints and take those, you know, optimizations or opportunities back into the community? So with with your role at, you know, help, helping incubate uh, newer projects in Apache? Definitely. Um, I mean, sometimes it's been launching new projects. Sometimes it's just adding things to existing projects. Sometimes it's figuring out how to make projects work together because um, you realize that, you know, two piece, two projects have half what you need and all I have to do is figure out how to hook them up and we can solve this problem. Um, but yeah, I definitely get a lot of chance to, well, not just me, our whole company. I, I don't, not alone at all in that. There's only like four. There's, no, you can, you can tell us. Yeah. You can tell us, man, you, you, you're, you're running the show, man. This is, oh wait, we are running five, right? <laughs> That's a four person show Four four dudes and a dog. So, uh, all kidding aside though, I, I, I know Hortonworks is a big place. Uh, the Apache community is a is a big place, but it's it's still very much a technical community. Um, are you still are you still getting hands on uh, on a weekly basis? I do. So I um, it really varies kind of from time and place. There are times when I'm getting to write code one day a week. There's times when I'm doing it four days a week. Um, right now I'm in kind of in a four days a week mode, which actually makes me fairly happy. I um, I really am an engineer top to bottom, but, um, the, I, you know, it, I find that one, I, I want to stay very connected just cause I like doing it, but also it, pretty soon you don't know what you're talking about. If you don't, if you're not in it day to day, right. You can present the slides and you can talk at a high level, but somebody asks you a question and at the next level down and you just don't know. And the only way to to know is to really be a part of it every day. And also I think when you, when you help start a company, you have to figure out what are you good at? And the reality is I'm not a business guy and I'm not a manager. Um, I'm good at helping build this stuff. So that's what I do. (laughs) Well, it's funny. I I always tell, um, uh, you know, I've had the chance to mentor systems engineers and folks that are kind of in technical pre-sales roles and capacities helping drive technology adoption. Right. But one thing is I always tell them is, man, you got to stay hands-on. Like you got to carve out that, that time. I'd, I'd love to hear that you're still doing that. Even, you know, I think most of us that have been in and around this community, when we hear names like yours out there, we're like, Oh man, they must just be like flying around, hanging out with cool customers, like just being awesome all the time. But you're actually doing the fun stuff that you love that, that you enjoy doing that, that, that I think gives us all a lot of confidence that it's okay for us to continue to be nerds. And I, when you said engineer top to bottom, does that mean like a little pudgy, uh, definitely have a beard, probably a Mountain Dew somewhere nearby? Um, well, I'm not pudgy. I actually, Aww, boo. I, I enjoy running in my spare time. So that tends to discourage the weight. Um, definitely have, well, diet Mountain Dew now. Oh, not, there you go. Not regular <laughs> Class. And, you know, I've tried to grow a beard off and on, but it just doesn't look <laughs> right. That's, that's all right. We have, uh, we actually have a new sponsor of our, of our podcast and they're, they're awesome. They're called beard ski. So next time you need to go hit the mountains, get you a beard ski. They're these really, these really rad masks that look like beards. Uh, and they are officially a sponsor of our show and they're a sponsor of our show right. only because I had to figure out a way to get some of the dudes that don't have beards won't grow them or too they're just not committed enough i had to get a way to get them a good beard so we partnered up with beardski.com to uh to get us some to get us some beards so that's that's awesome that you're still in code thanks for doing that so are you um are you going to any of the big um the big conferences this year like the dataworks conferences and if so are you going to be presenting anything there um, I will, I'm sure I'll be going cause one of my side jobs here is I actually coordinate the technical content of the DataWorks con- uh, conferences, um, or help coordinate it. So from the engineering side, obviously we let, you know, uh, community groups choose the content, but you have to do a little bit of editing to make sure you don't get 10 talks on the hottest topic and nothing on anything else. And you, um, and you just, you know, Somebody has to be out there recruiting the reviewers and and kind of all that finding replacements for last minute uh, people that couldn't show up and all those things. So I I help with that. So I'll definitely be involved. I you I usually speak at most of them. I've um, 
I actually quite enjoy doing that. I don't, I haven't gotten around to putting in a talk for the next one, which is in Berlin in April, um, which I guess I should get to because I think the call for papers closes pretty soon. Yeah, so I think December 14th. And uh, so we're, yeah. so the collective group at the Big Data Beard team would like to officially begin begging for your uh, consideration of our abstracts. Uh, <laughs> we've, uh, We've all been working really hard to get some some interesting talks going. So if you see our names up there, we are expecting a little preferential treatment, if you know what I mean. Only half of them are actually about views. <laughs> the other half, we're actually talking big data. So right. I don't know if that helps or hurts us. I'm actually just going to stand up there and drink beer and to get foam in my mustache for 30 minutes. It's going to be a brilliant... Well, we should get you involved. You know, we have a, you know, some like, what is, oh, birds of a feather. That's what we should have a beards, birds of the feather afterwards. Well, there's, I'm pretty sure there's a couple of sparrows hanging out in this face forest I've got going on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so I got a, I got a question just in general. Again, it's your, you've, you got this cool view of kind of this community. What are the, you know, what's the, what's on the horizon for just the general big data community? I know we talked use cases are important, but just where do you see this community going and, and what do you think are the, the kind of the next big things that we as participants in the community should either be paying attention to or starting to work on now? Um, well, it's, so let, I'll kind of throw out several directions that I see things going and I don't, the thing is. I get so in the weeds in a section too that it can be hard to know if I'm seeing the whole picture or parts of it, but there are several parts I'm seeing. And some we've alluded to, which is the connectedness of data. You know, like people should be able to get to operate on, use whatever it is they do with their data, regardless of its location, whether it's in a cluster somewhere, a cloud somewhere, or out on the edge. I think the other thing that I'm seeing a lot of, and this is a reflection of where I spend uh, part of my time, is around security and governance of the data. Um, what what are the protocols for how you keep data or how long you keep it or who you can present it to, who you can share it with? What um, When the customer calls and says, you know, what are you doing with my data or can you please delete it or... Can you tell me who you've given it to? How do you answer those questions or deal with those things? I think those are going to get more and more important. We see that certainly happening in Europe with, I don't know if you guys have heard of the GDPR legislation, but it's, okay. Uh, That's obviously a huge deal for many of our customers, even companies that aren't primarily European, because anybody who has any data on any EU citizen is uh, bound by that. But I suspect we'll see other countries starting to adopt either GDPR itself or, you know, something similar. Those, and and I would say rightfully so. I mean, people are, um, you know, as companies and governments and others collect lots and lots of data as individuals, we want to know who, who has what information and how secure is it. We've obviously seen failures of that recently um, in terms of, you know, our information not being properly uh, guarded by those who have it. So I think there'll be a lot of focus going forward on that, which is something that's honestly a bit of a shift for people in this community because the community has been really engineering driven and engineers tend to think of security and governance as something you have to do, not something you want to do, right? We'll do it later. Yeah, it's not interesting, right? Somebody else will come along and do that. And I I think that we have to shift that mindset a little bit and think about, well, actually, we have to shift it a lot. We have to think about security first. We have to be asking ourselves, okay, who, how is this data safe? What are the ways somebody might try to get at it? What, um, What do I need to do to enable my users to, you know, to protect their stuff? Yeah. So, hey, uh, Alan, I want to roll up a couple of topics that we've we talked about today because I think that you just touched on that something that that popped a little light on in my head. So, I'm working with a couple of different global organizations now where uh, you know, like data geeks want all the data all the time, regardless of where it originated from or where it came from. But to your point about security and governance, some of this data crosses political boundaries or uh, nation state boundaries where data has to stay local. But that scale that they need to keep. 
um, you know, into deep archive and many, many years of retention, you know, all those things together where I've got, you know, uh, nation boundaries and retention and governance and uh, Im- important aspects or privacy regulations around the data. All those things are critical. How do I continue to grow at the scale to the, and use the kinds of security and governance and data orchestration that you're talking about today? Well, so let me just be upfront and say, I don't think anyone's answered that question well yet. Right. It's not like I can pull a project out of my hat and say, here's something that will magically solve your problem. Um, I can tell you that there are people working on these problems. Um, we have a, a project. Well, it's, I mean, there's an Apache project that we are part of, Apache Atlas, that tracks data provenance and the rules around various data sets and those sorts of things. Um and we are, through our collaboration in ODPI, which is a, an industry collaboration group of us and IBM and SAS and some others, um, we're working on adding kind of modules to Atlas that would enable it to track some of those sorts of things. But it's very early days. I mean, right now what we have are a beautiful set of slides that explain how all this is going to work. It's not like there's a a solution that's been found yet. Yeah. So ODPI is an interesting one for a lot of us. It, you know, it was, it created kind of a, a, a rift between, you know, I think what the market generally agrees are the two biggest players in this space between you guys at Hortonworks and Cloudera in terms of an approach. What do, what do you think the big benefit of ODPI has been in this, in this community? Well, to date, so ODPI was created to give really with the goal of saying, okay, there's, I don't know, remember what there were at the time, five or seven or whatever it was, Hadoop distributions. And let's try to bring some kind of uniformity here so that users don't have to worry about the fact that they're, you know, they may have to run on different uh, distributions because a particular company might buy one or the other distribution, but most anybody who's building software on top of it is going to want to run on on multiple distributions because they don't know what their customers are going to want to use. Um, the, there was a lot of consolidation in the market. So that actually, in that sense, ODPI was very helpful, pivotal, and IBM ended up uh, consolidating on top of HDP as a distribution. And we're kind of down to a point where it's us and Cloudera and MapR and there's and also kind of Amazon and its tools, if you're just thinking here in the US. So in that sense, a lot of consolidation has been driven. Now ODPI is turning and starting to look at the next problem of, okay, so if we've driven a lot of consolidation, the next thing is let's look at um, how would we govern and secure this data? Because that's kind of one of the next big problems that users have. Alan, thanks again for being on the show. We're going to we're gonna roll into a wrap it up, but we'll, before we let you leave, we're going to ask you some rapid fire questions. So these questions, first thing that comes to mind, we'll just kind of go through them. Is that all right? Are you ready? Sure. Fire away. <laughs> what year will Skynet go online? Uh, 2035. <laughs> if you bought me a book, what would it be? Um, Lord of the Rings. Which one? The whole no, it's one book. <laughs> Controversy here. Oh, okay, okay. So, okay, I got it. Not the Hobbit. You're saying no, no, no. The, the real Lord of the Rings. All right, got it. <laughs> what genre of music are you rocking to right now? Uh, '80s rock and roll. Always a good answer. <laughs> All right. I'm old, man. What is your favorite piece of useless tech? Favorite piece of useless tech. You know, like the thing that you you bought and you're like, this is kind of dumb, but I kind of love it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't buy stuff that's useless, actually. No, I'm not, I'm not like the tech guy. Who'd... Spoken like a true engineer. No, I, <laughs> no, I don't buy all the just – I'm not the latest junk kind of guy. So I'm trying to think what would be my um, – do, probably... do you own an Apple Watch? No, I don't. All right. See, that's another vote against them because we've had a – we asked this question to a bunch of people and like the majority of people say, well, my Apple Watch. <laughs> Yeah, we're never getting an Apple Watch sponsorship. No, I love my Apple Watch. Well, okay. Okay, let me modify that a bit. I have bought one, but as a gift for someone else. My son has one in which he loves. So. All right. Okay. 
What is your biggest money pit right now? For me personally or Hortonworks? Personally, you. My, uh, my biggest money pit, my, my diesel Volkswagen that I need, need to get rid of. Oh, is it like a, is it a cool, like cool old diesel Volkswagen or just like a 95 Passat that just is beat up? No, it's, it's just, a um, it's a 2014, uh, Jetta. It's just, I ordered a new car and it keeps getting delayed. And so I keep having to put like small things keep breaking on my Jetta and it's driving me nuts. <laughs> oh, that's the one that, uh, it puts out more smog than an 18 wheeler, right? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Love it. Are you going anywhere interesting soon? I'm going to Disneyland over Christmas. Uh, oh, wow. That's about it. What show are you binging on right now? Uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but the old Alec Guinness version, not the, not the recent one. Oh, very good. Well, thanks again, Alan. Uh, that's all for today's show. I want to thank you for being a part of the show. Make sure that you subscribe to the Big Data Beard podcast so that you never miss an episode. Make sure you rate us on iTunes. Thanks again. All right. Well, thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Big Data Beard podcast. As a thank you for listening to our show, we'd like to offer you a chance to win a free pass to Strata Conference in San Jose, March 6th through the 8th of 2018. To enter, all you need to do is either subscribe to our mailing list at bigdatabeard.com forward slash follow or submit a review in iTunes rating our podcast. Or you can do both and be entered for two chances to win. We will hold a random drawing in early January and make the announcement of the winner by January 31st. And don't forget, you can get a 20% discount to attend any of O'Reilly's Strata Data or AI conferences globally. Simply use the link in our show notes or promo code PCBEARD at checkout. And tune in to future episodes for chances to win free passes to these awesome conferences. Thanks for listening and let that beard grow.